We're going to be looking again at a passage of Scripture this morning, Luke 15. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there with us. Otherwise, you can uh, follow along uh, on the screen. Uh, we're spending a few weeks looking at this chapter, chapter 15. Uh, it's a chapter where Jesus tells some stories for a very specific purpose. They're kind of simple stories, not very complicated. Um, but if we understand them, they can actually have, I think, a pretty profound impact on us. So I'm going to read... Uh, uh, in chapter 15, starting at verse 11, I'll read to the end of the chapter. Jesus continued, There was a man that had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything... There was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, <clears throat> excuse me, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father. And say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And so he got up, and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father... I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house... He heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. And so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. And yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when your son, the son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Pray with me. Fathers, we come to study this passage. We pray that you would teach us, give us insight that would change us, give us understanding that would let us know you better as well as ourselves. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus tells us a story that uh, is about a father with two sons. And uh, this is not a story about a prodigal son or a story about uh, forgiving bad behavior. 
It's much, much, much more than that. And today we'll be looking at the first son. This is a really a very, very simple message. It's going to be about the prodigal son. We saw last week that when Jesus told this story, it was a shocking story to his listeners, to the Pharisees and to the teachers of the law who were good, hardworking religious people. The father's actions in this story were embarrassing. His forgiveness The way he acts, what he does, his grace, it's kind of vulgar. It's certainly ill-advised. To the tax collectors and to the sinners who are hearing this message, the father's actions were anything but embarrassing. They were embracing. It made them wonder, was Jesus saying that this is how the heavenly father loves us? And that's why they were coming in droves to hear Jesus teach. Because nobody understand, nobody talked about God this way. We saw that the purpose of this story was to challenge the thinking of these people. Because the religion that they practice said that God was someone he really wasn't. And it also was a religion that made people into something they really weren't. And so Jesus is challenging this kind of religious thinking. I said last week that everybody, every human being, whether we know it or not, is religious, meaning that we operate moralistically. We think in terms of good and bad. We think, for example, that the problem in the world is not me. It's everyone who is not like me. Everyone who doesn't live according to the values and the rules that I live by, those are the people making trouble in the world. And obviously, God, if there is a God, He wants good people, people like me, to join him. We saw that the prodigal son hated his father, but wanted his wealth. And when he got it, he left. He was thrilled to be free of what he probably thought were all these silly, useless rules of his father. But even the prodigal son was acting moralistically. He was judging his father, probably his brother too. And that was the problem. He saw them as the problem. It was their attitudes. It was their beliefs. It was the kind of rules that they lived by that were making his life miserable. And uh, I'll bet he thought that if he could just get away from them, get away from his surroundings, get away from his circumstances, life would be so much better. And so the point is that even the prodigal son, although he decided to do many immoral things, was actually living moralistically. He was saying, I'm right you're wrong. If you would just change the way you think and the way you live, if you would just be more like me, then the whole world would be a whole lot better. Now, to be fair here, uh, we're not going to really study the elder brother, but if we're going to be fair, we have to also just note that the elder brother was thinking in exactly the same way. He judged his father and his younger brother. His father was a slave driver, we read. That's the way he perceived his dad. His brother, he said, was whoring with prostitutes and squandering the estate. Only he, only the elder brother, was the good guy in his thinking. And the bottom line was, and this was uh, really the very shocking part, Jesus says both sons are lost. Both are alienated. Both are running from the father. Both really didn't know their father. And so we see in both cases, the father goes out to these two sons to bring them in. And here's the real rub. 
Jesus says that while both sons are equally alienated from the father, there is one very, very significant difference. The prodigal son comes to a place where he sees his father differently and where he sees his sin and his foolishness. And as far as we know, the elder brother never gets to that place as far as we know. And so, you know, we kind of want to know, we, we want to understand what has to happen in order for this prodigal son to come back to his father, to be restored relationally to his father. And that's what I want to observe together this morning in the time that we have. There is something that has to happen. Something that leads to what the Bible calls repentance. Uh, repentance is a, it's a change of mind that changes our behavior. And the truth is, repentance is the key, the absolute key to any and every healthy relationship. Um, I'm an old guy, and I've done a lot of premarital counseling, and I always am interested in premarital counseling. It's probably fair to say that anytime you enter into a premarital counseling situation, talking with a young man and a young woman, uh, they're both in love. They both believe that in time, you know, in minor areas where they think differently and act differently and disagree, areas like the in-laws, you know, how are we going to handle the in-laws? Areas like balancing between home and work, what is that going to look like? Uh, areas like communication patterns or sexual intimacy or personal habits and idiosyncrasies or sharing household responsibilities, who's going to mow, who's going to do the dishes or outside friendships, how often are we going to have friends in the home? or political and religious views or debt difficulties or disciplining children, all minor areas, just minor stuff, which all happen to be the 10 main reasons why marriages end. These areas were disagreements where spouses differ. Well, young couples tend to think that their spouse will grow and come to see things the way things really are, the way they see them. But with time, most come to see that this expectation of theirs, that their spouse would change when come to agree with them, was a little naive. Differences don't dissolve away, and disagreements don't necessarily diminish. They might even escalate. So now what? What do you do? Well, to put it really simply, either the spouses in a marriage like that learn to do what we're talking about, which is this thing of repentance that has changed their mind so that it changes their behavior, or they're in for a relationship that's going to be just a very, very difficult, very bumpy ride. The years ahead will not be easy. You see, repentance is the key to any healthy relationship, even this relationship that we're told about in Jesus' story. In this story, the younger son is not agreeing with his father. We don't know specifically about what. Um, maybe it was his friends, or maybe it was his work ethic, or maybe it was the son's use of money, or the son's use of his time, or maybe it was loose morals. We actually don't know. But we do know that the son wants to leave. He wants to get out of there. You hear that? Okay, there we go. I'm just, it might be angelic. I just want to be sure I'm not missing something. <laughs> here's, a, here's an interesting thing. Researchers into relationships tell us that there are four sure signs 
of relationship disaster. This applies especially in a marriage, but it also applies even in friendships. When, a, when in a relationship, the various parties start criticizing each other and, and actually questioning each other's character. Uh, when in a relationship, uh, the, the parties in that relationship become disgusted with each other. They have contempt for one another. When in a relationship, there's all kinds of defensiveness. It's not my problem. It's your problem. It's not what I'm doing. It's what you're doing. When in a relationship, parties start to stonewall each other. In other words, they start disengaging. I don't want to talk about this. I'm not interested in resolving this. You see, when that starts to happen, that leads to relationship disaster. And in Jesus' story, this prodigal son is almost certainly doing every one of those things. He's attacking his father's character. He's uh, disgusted about the life he has to live at home. He blames his dad and almost certainly his brother for his unhappiness. He wants to leave, not talk about any of this. Uh, One uh, piece of the good news in this story is that the father actually lets him leave. Lets him leave with his inheritance. We'll come back to this, but that's one of the shocking pieces of the story too. Perhaps his father knows that the only way this relationship with his young son can be saved is just to let him go. Let him go be himself. Let him go learn on his own. It seems the father lovingly dismisses him knowing full well this is not going to go well. A whole lot of money is going to be lost, is going to be squandered, and who knows what else. Well, as we just read, it's the grace from the father that allows the son actually to eventually come to his senses. The prodigal has been thinking things about his dad that frankly just aren't true. He's been believing things about his father that are just not accurate. They are colored by his own uh, selfish bias, if you will. But this doesn't dawn on him until he is in quite a bit of trouble. He's, He's far from home. He's out of money, and he literally has no friends. And frankly, nobody, nobody in this land to which he's gone, nobody cares a hoot for him. He's practically starving to death, literally. In fact, we read in verse 17 that when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. You see, this son, now on his own, begins to re-examine the facts. And this is the beginning of repentance. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. It's the first thing that he realizes uh, as he starts to reflect on his circumstances and think back to his dad. He realizes that his dad actually takes very good care of even his servants. His dad is not like the man that uh, he's currently working for. This man sent him out to feed pigs, and there's a whole side story to that. If you know anything about Jewish faith and foods that were forbidden, you know, pork is one of them, and to actually be feeding pigs was a a disgusting and degrading job, but he was so desperate, he took the job, but even taking the job, this man that hired him gave him food to feed the pigs, but no food to feed himself. He was starving. But that's not the way his dad treated his servants. And it starts to dawn on his son that maybe, just maybe, the way he had judged his father was wrong. He's been judging his father pretty harshly. And uh, the son's mind starts to change on all this. And then so does his behavior. 
The apostle Paul says that coming to our senses is a key part of this thing of repentance. We've all had points in life where we've had to come to our senses. The apostle Paul writes to Timothy and he says, those who oppose the Lord's servant. In other words, Timothy, those who oppose you, because Timothy was the Lord's servant there in Ephesus. He said, those who oppose the Lord's servant, who oppose you, Timothy, you must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of, of the truth. See, they had wrong thinking, wrong thoughts, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil. The trap of the devil is believing wrong things, perhaps about others or perhaps about yourself. That they will escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So what has to happen for this young man has started to happen. He's changing his thinking. And he's starting to see the truth about his father and maybe too some of the truth about himself. Up to this point, the son has been in a trap, a trap that the devil has made for them. He's been blaming his father, judging his father, accusing his father, and uh, believing the worst about his father. He's resented his father's belief. He's resented his father's lifestyle, the things that the father cherishes. And he's pretty sure that his father just didn't want him to have any fun in life whatsoever. But now things start to change. Now it seems that his father may have been just trying to prevent this disaster from happening all along. Maybe that's what his father was up to. And I'm sure the more this young man thought about it, the more he realized his father had actually treated him with large amounts of patience and love and forgiveness and provision and respect, even respect. Instead of dismissing him in disgust when he asked for his inheritance, the father actually respected him and gave him his inheritance. And here's the son. The son, what's he doing? Well, he's acting with a great deal of insolence and rudeness and judgment. I bet some of his own words were coming back to him, times that he had yelled at his father and no doubt his goody-two-shoes elder brother as well. I bet he wished he could take some of that back, some of those words back. The son had been caught in the trap of the devil. Wrong thinking, wrong behavior, but not seeing it. He'd even come to believe that his father was standing in the way of what he wanted most, which was happiness, right? Happiness. And consequently, there was no real relationship between them, between he and his father. The son wouldn't have it, wouldn't hear it. But this all begins to change when the son starts to come to his senses. You see, coming to our senses is when we start to see the world differently. Coming to our senses is when um, we start to see the world the way Jesus sees it. It's like moving from insanity, actually, to, to sanity. It's seeing the Father for who he really is. And it's seeing yourself for who you really are. This son was beginning to see that he'd crossed every line imaginable. He didn't even deserve to be a son anymore, he thought. And here's the thing. He was exactly right. He was exactly right. Any normal father in that culture would have disowned this son because his disrespect was too great. But not this father, not the father in Jesus' story. And so this son comes to his senses, and as you expect, he starts to see his father differently, and he starts to see himself differently, and, and uh, that had to be very painful. 
It usually is when we start to see ourselves differently. And so he says this, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, you know, it's interesting to notice what he doesn't say. Uh, He doesn't come to the father and say, Father, I'm sorry I asked for my inheritance prematurely. I know how rude that was. I know how wrong that was. I'm sorry. He doesn't say, I'm sorry that I squandered it, by the way. He doesn't say, I'm sorry I slept with some prostitutes. What he says is, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you. It's his way, I think, of saying, I have been running from you, running from our relationship for as long as I can remember. And he's not really, he's not just being dramatic. He, he had sinned against heaven. And of course, he had sinned against his father. You know, back in verse 12, he said, uh, Father, give me my share of the estate. And many commentators will note that this young brother, when he said this, was actually saying, Father, <laughs> Father, I just wish you were dead. I wish you were out of my life. I wish you were gone. I just want the money, not you. Nothing could have been more rejecting or more disrespectful. And so he is absolutely right. And this needs to sink in. Absolutely right. He is no longer worthy to be a son. That's a fact. And that realization, as it began to dawn on him, I'll bet was crushing. The father owed him nothing. Nothing at all. The son had been so blind. He'd been so ungrateful. Somehow, this son had missed the obvious. His father had always loved him. His father had always wanted nothing but the best for him. His father had wanting nothing more for him than happiness, but he was blinded by wanting his own control, wanting things to be just a certain way, wanting to get away from home and make his own home on his own terms. His sin was so much more than just breaking some rules, you understand. He had violated the love and the trust of his father. He'd taken his father's patience, his father's wisdom, his father's daily provision. He'd taken all of that just for granted. So what? And he'd refused his father's attempts at friendship. And now it had all come back to this, back to haunt him. And here's the sad deal, friends. We do this too, (laughs) almost every day. We question and we challenge the Father's intentions. We challenge the Father's goodness. We challenge the Father's trustworthiness. Every time we choose not to listen to the Father, we're doing this. Every time we choose our way and not his way, we're doing this. Every time we arrange our priorities or use our resources or choose a course of action without listening to him, without caring about what he says or what he thinks, whether this will honor him or dishonor him, when we do this, we too are running from the father, just like the prodigal did. And to my shame, I I have to say I do this all the time, all the time. You know, when Jesus would gather groups together, he would say things to the disciples and to followers and to listeners like this. He would say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He'd say, forgive and you will be forgiven. He'd say, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. He wanted people's treasure to be with the Father, you see, in heaven. 
He'd say, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And I'm thinking, this can't possibly, can't possibly be in my best interest to do any of that. This can't possibly be the way for me to get ahead. None of that could possibly lead to my living happily ever after. Not possible. I'm sure the prodigal heard his father say things to him that he said, yeah, not possible. <laughs> That's not for me. And so he, get up, he got up and he left and he did what he wanted to do. And I look at that and it's easy to judge, but I look at me and I think, how different am I? Not very. Now, things didn't work out for this prodigal very well, as you know, not as he'd hoped. When he goes on his own way and he does his own thing and he rejects the father's love and the father's wisdom and the father's patience, it doesn't work out so well. In this story, Jesus rather masterfully shows us kind of another side of sin. He shows us that when you run from the father, when you seek a home where there really is no home, you're not free. We sang about that this morning, the freedom that comes from knowing we're a child of God. You're not really free when you look for a home away from home. You're actually in bondage. One psychologist defines a home as a place where one feels they belong or they feel they're accepted. It's a pretty good definition. The prodigal son was looking for a home, one away from his father, right? He thought, if I can just get out of here, if I can just get my inheritance, if I can spend it the way I want, take control of my own life, I'll make a home for myself, a place where I'll be accepted, a place where people appreciate me, a place where I belong. And when this young man left home, um, he obviously did many things. Verse 13 tells us that he squandered his wealth in wild living. According to the elder brother, that meant prostitutes and apparently a lot of them. And apparently he burned through this inheritance fairly quickly. We don't know how long. Um, and I'm sure for a while, his money and his wild living made him kind of the guy around town, you know, the talk of the town. And uh, he probably had more friends and lovers than he knew what to do with for a while. Talk about belonging. Talk about acceptance. Talk about taking control. Talk about making a home for yourself. Man, he belonged. He was accepted. He was in control. He had a home if he had the money. See, ironically... He left home to find a home, and in a weird kind of way, that is exactly what happened. Because when the money ran out, he discovered where he really belonged, where he was really accepted, had been back home with his father. Verse 13 tells us that he, he set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. That word wild literally means out of control, out of control living. And it's ironic I think it's meant to be ironic in Jesus' story that this young prodigal, by taking control of his own life and by running away from the father and by leaving his home with the father, he was really just giving control of his life to other things. Henry Nouwen, uh, who is a Catholic priest, uh, deceased now, he wrote a really interesting book on this parable many years ago. And in that little book, he says this, he says, He's reflecting on this idea of the prodigal leaving home and so on. He says, home is the center of my being where I can hear the voice, 
This is the voice of the Father that says, you are my beloved in whom I am well pleased. That's home, he says. And he says, Jesus made it clear that the same voice that he heard in the Jordan River when he was being baptized and on Mount Tabor at the transfiguration, that same voice can be heard by me. Jesus makes it so that I can hear the same voice that Jesus heard. Now when it's saying that Jesus makes it clear, Jesus makes it possible that we have a home with the Father. We belong to the Father. We are accepted, always accepted with the Father. But if we run from the Father and decide to control our own lives to be our own master, if you will, then we start looking for a place to belong and a place to be accepted. And when we do that, we give power to other things and to other people in our lives. We let them define us. And define us, they will. Believe me. People out there, the world out there will always love you if, if, yes, I love you if you have the money, if you have the intelligence, if you have the good looks, the education, the pedigree, the success, if you make me happy, if you please me, if, 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 it's endless ifs, you see. Yes, you belong here. Yes, I accept you if. And when we go looking for a place to belong and to be accepted other than the home of our heavenly father, we live by the ifs. We're on a performance system. And living by the ifs leads to all kinds of fear and worry and jealousy and greed and anger and resentment and clutching and selfish ambition. Because there are certain things that I have to have if I'm going to belong if I'm going to be accepted, you see. That's why the prodigal wanted that inheritance so badly. But you see, when I'm home with the Father, when I know that I am the Father's beloved son or the Father's beloved daughter, then I, I belong and I'm accepted no matter what. No matter what my money or intelligence or looks or education or pedigree or success, I belong. I'm accepted because of my Father. And the Father loves me, you see, unconditionally. You see, friends, if you try to get away from the Father and if you try to get control of your life without Him, He'll let you go. Just like He did the prodigal. But you'll... Find, if you are the prodigal, that you'll be surrounded by people and things that will love you if. Love you if. Now, thank God in Jesus' story, the prodigal comes to his senses. Starts to rethink things about the father and about himself. I guess my question to us this morning is just a very simple one. The question is, have you come to your senses? question I ask myself. Have we come to the place where we see that our father is so good, so good that he desires nothing but our good? You see, he loves us so completely, there are no ifs. And he provides for us so thoroughly, there are no ifs. And he accepts us so completely, there are no ifs. He takes us, like the old hymn says, just as I am just as I am. 
And that's the good news that Jesus wanted the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the tax collectors and the sinners and you and me to understand. It's what we have to understand in order to come to our senses. Uh, There's a gentleman named Brennan Manning. Uh, Many of you have heard of him. A well-known author and a well-known speaker. Um, He died in 2013. Uh, He grew up in a very, very unloving and dysfunctional home. About age 16, he started drinking pretty hard. A few years later, he joined the Marines. Um, When he got out of the Marines, he actually had a, a very powerful experience with God, and he became a Franciscan priest. Um, in the years that followed his getting ordained in the Roman Catholic Church, he became a theology teacher. He was a campus pastor at one point. Uh, he went for a couple of years to Spain and, and uh, lived with some, a group of, of other uh, monks. These were monks. They called the, the Little Brothers, and they served the poorest of the poor. They lived among the poor. He did that for several years. And then after being in the priesthood for 20 years, he fell in love with a woman and he remitted his vows and, and he left the priesthood and he got married. And that marriage lasted for about 17 years. Now through all of this, he spoke and he wrote books and he drank. He was an alcoholic. And uh, he'd speak at conferences, oftentimes to thousands of people. He was a very popular speaker. And after the conference was over, he would disappear for four or five days. This, is, this was his basic routine. And he would wind up in a hotel room. He would dive deeply into a deep, dark, black, drunken stupor. And in four or five days, when he would sober up a little bit, he'd limp home, spend a few days with the family, and then he'd be back off to another speaking engagement. And he wrote books about grace. A couple of his books are some of the best books I've ever read. Ragamuffin Gospel. Some of you have heard of that. You might have read it. Abba's Child. The Parable of Willie Wan. Ruthless Grace. And then his last book was a book called All. All is Grace. It's an autobiographical book. And in these books, he'd talk about the unfairness of grace. Grace is unfair. He would talk about the vulgarity of grace, the shocking, unsettling truth about grace. And I want to read you just a couple of paragraphs from this book I read just recently. He says this about himself. He says, my life is a witness to vulgar grace, a grace that uh, amazes as much as it offends, a grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day Uh, the same wages as the grinning drunk who shows up at 10 till 5. You know, that's the story in Matthew 20. He says, a grace that hikes up the robe and runs breakneck toward the prodigal, reeking of sin, and wraps him up and decides to throw a party. No ifs, ands, or buts. That's our story. A grace that raises bloodshot eyes to a dying thief's request. Please remember me and assures him, You bet, today you'll be with me in paradise. A grace that is the pleasure of the Father, fleshed out in the carpenter, Messiah, Jesus the Christ, who left his Father's side, not for heaven's sake, but for our sakes, yours and mine. This vulgar grace is indiscriminate compassion. 
It works without asking anything of us. It's not cheap. It's free. And as such, will always be a banana peel for the orthodox foot and a fairy tale for the grown-up sensibility. Grace is sufficient even though we huff and puff with all our might to try to find something or someone it cannot cover. But he writes, grace is enough. He is enough. Jesus is enough. And then one last line. God loves you unconditionally as you are and not as you should be because nobody is as they should be. That's what the prodigal son discovered. My contention as we study there in Luke 15 is that we are the prodigal son and we are the elder brother. We'll get to him another Sunday. You see, the prodigal son came to his senses and the truth about his father was that his father was just all about grace. Amazing grace, indescribable grace, unfair grace, vulgar grace, and acceptance and belonging. You see that this son did not deserve, he found it in his father. And I would contend that when we understand this grace, it crushes us in a good way. It changes us. And so my question for you is the one I've been asking myself. Have you come to your senses? Has the unfair grace of the Father, has the weight of the truth of his acceptance of you and your belonging to him, has that crushed you? Is that changing you? It should. It should. You know, imagine... uh, We don't get what we deserve. That's the unfairness of grace. We get something better. We don't get what we deserve because Jesus didn't get what he deserved. He deserved something better, but he got something worse. And that's the gospel. It's what we celebrate. It's the good news. It's a reason to get excited. And that's why Jesus tells this story. Now, I said at the beginning, this is a simple message, and it is. It's very simple. But the question for all of us is, what do we do with this, a message like this? What do we do with these stories that we find in Luke 15? Some of us just need to be more grateful. Some of us need to think about the grace we're given every day. And we just need to tell them. Others of us may actually be in a place that's kind of far from home. We know about the Father. We have maybe a casual or distant relationship to him, but we're not really crushed by his grace. We're not really being changed by it because we frankly keep him at a distance. And we need to change our thinking if that's where we are, and we need to let that change our behavior. Some of us just need to come home to the Father. You know, you wonder, churches sometimes seem like they're in the business of giving you religious things to do, like small groups, right? Or, you know, read your Bible, or you ought to pray more. Anybody here not need to do those things? Yeah. 
But the reality is the only reason we keep hammering these things is in the hope that as we do this together with others who love Jesus, their love for Jesus rubs off on us. And occasionally our love for Jesus rubs off on them. So I don't know, I can't tell you what your next steps need to be or what they look like, but I can tell you, you know, I know this firsthand. I'm a professional at this. We get callous to the grace of God. We get familiar with the grace of God. And we take it for granted. The prodigal had to go off to a foreign land and had to literally lose everything before it began to dawn on him, before he came to his senses just how the father loved him and cared for him and forgave him, how he belonged and was accepted with the father. I just want us, you and me, to be reminded of that this morning. That is the good news of the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I would pray for myself that this message that Jesus taught, that this thing we call the gospel would change me and crush me in the good way of of making me different. And I would pray, God, that that grace over all of us, that all of us would not be able to hear about how you accept us and how we belong to you, and yet in spite of our prodigal nature, make us people, Father, that celebrate this good news and this grace in ways that help us to love others and serve others and help us to encourage others with this good news. Father, whether in our small groups, whether in serving in this building or out in the community, wherever it may be, may may the gospel, may this message change us so that we can represent you well to others, so that others will come to know the unfair grace, unbelievable grace that we see in your son, Jesus. Father, we thank you for time to study, to sing, and to pray together, God, because it's in these times that sometimes you redirect our thinking. You remind us of things we need to be reminded of. And in all of that, you change us. Thank you, Father, for meeting us this morning. Thank you for being in our gathering. Receive our worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.